You're listening to sermon audio from Gospelite Baptist Church. For more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit gospelite.org. My name, by the way, is Kevin Connor, and I am not the pastor here. I'm just a substitute this morning, but uh, I have been in the ministry for, I was just think, sitting about there thinking about it. 37 years ago, I was ordained in the ministry, and so I've been preaching for about 37 years. Right now, I was, I'm working over at the college over here at Champion, but I was a missionary in China for almost 15 years, as well as working at a church in Texas for about 17 years or uh, I don't even remember. I'm getting them all mixed up in now. <laughs> but uh, then I've been here a couple years also. But uh, my wife, where's my wife at? Find out where she's at so I can get her glares and stares and so forth. Uh, but uh, but uh, we have several sons that are living here also. They're all grown. We have seven grandchildren. And so today we're going to be talking a little bit about parenting. But we're going to begin with the ultimate parent, God the Father. And... Our theme for our church this year has been the year of prayer. This month, it's a praying for our families. And so this morning, we're going to begin by looking at the Lord's Prayer and how he taught us to pray. It's actually just a model prayer. Uh, we don't have to pray these exact words whenever we pray, but this is a good model prayer, a pattern for us to follow when we go to the Lord in prayer. Um, and it was helpful for, for me to understand that years ago when I learned that, and it kind of changed my prayer life a bit. Um, but then we're going we're, we're gonna to connect this then to a family because God is the father of our family. That's actually my first point, so I'm getting ahead of myself. But God is our, the father of our family, the church. All right? But we'll begin by looking at the Lord's Prayer. And um, I just want to say our nation is really drifting right now. Uh, our economy's messed up. Our morals are messed up. Uh, and it all goes back to our foundation and our families, because society is made up of families. God instituted the family in the very beginning, a man and a woman together, and they were to have children, and that's what a family is. And, and then God builds a society upon that. And so the strength of society is only as strong as the families that make them up. And so unfortunately, our families have become, are becoming weak. The family is under attack from all different directions. Even the definition of what a family is is not clear anymore. Because Satan knows if he can destroy the family, he'll destroy societies. And he's, and he's doing a good job of it. And unfortunately, too many of us are going right along with him. All right? But um, our families are far from God, and therefore our nation is far from God right now. So let's begin by looking at the Lord's Prayer. And Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray. And he, he uh, let's see, I lost my place here. He said this, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And let's go ahead and pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for the opportunity to be gathered together here in this country, in this city, in this church. And I pray, Father, that you would meet with us this morning, that you would send the Spirit upon us, that we might have ears to hear and eyes to see, that we might understand your truths. Father, I pray that you would take my tongue that's set on fire of hell and set it on fire of the Holy Spirit, that I might speak your words of truth and that they might touch people's hearts and that people might see your heart uh, through your words this morning, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. This Lord's Prayer is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, chapter 6, it's 5 through 7 is basically the Sermon on the Mount. And so Jesus is teaching his disciples here how to pray. The first two words are, 
our Father. He's teaching them to come to God as a father. And this is made possible by Jesus' presence here on earth. He has, he has come to restore our relationship with the Father. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later. But I want you also to notice that Jesus told us to say, Our Father. This is interesting because just a few verses before in verse 6, Jesus just started telling them, Don't be like the Pharisees that pray out in, front of, in public in front of everybody. Uh, go into your closet and pray. So here he's in the context, he's talking about private prayer, people going into their closet, and he says, and here's how you pray there. Our. Well, I'm by myself. No, you're not. You're a part of the church of Jesus Christ. You're a part of the family of Jesus Christ. And as you come to God, you're coming as a member of his church, as a member of his church family. I think... Ah, this is a side note, but I think the church, our idea of the church has gotten too weak. We're so individualistic that we often don't think about the importance of the church, and even, we even minimize the importance of the church. But the way you get to God is becoming a part of his family, and the church is his family. It's important. So we also can learn from this, that prayer is not to be selfish. When I come to our Father, I'm thinking of myself and my brothers and my relationship to Him. We're not just coming so that we can get stuff from Him. Too many of us treat God like our genie that we come and rub the bottle and hopefully He'll come out and give us three wishes. That's not who God is. God is our Almighty Creator. And then notice this is interesting. When we come to pray, God teaches us to pray for three things for the Father. We're just, we're, we, we start out by praying for things that he wants. Too often, we just don't even pray unless we need something, want something. Oh, I got a problem. Okay, I better go pray. God, I need, I need a new car. My car broke down. Oh, God, I need some new clothes. My clothes are wearing out. Oh, God, I want this. I need that. And it's okay to pray for things that you even desire. I'm not saying you can't pray for those things. But too often, our prayer is all just about me. Prayer is about God. Prayer is about coming to God, learning Him, understanding Him, learning His heart, and finding out what He wants. And praying for what He wants. Because we're His children carrying out His name and and advancing His kingdom. All right. So, notice these three things that He tells us to pray for. Number one, hallowed be whose name? Your name, his name, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All right, so, so we're, we're to pray for these three things. Hallowed be your name. What does that mean? That means, may your name be holy. Now, I used to, I used to kind of, I, unfortunately, I never stopped and thought about it enough, but I thought, okay, so God already is. Hallowed be means to make holy. And I'm thinking, well, God's already holy. He was always holy before we ever existed. So what does that mean, hallowed be? Does that mean God's name needs to, uh, God needs to be made holy? No, but God's name needs, needs to be made holy. Your name is like your reputation. Your name is your authority. And God's, uh, God's name needs to be made holy. And what is the name? That's, that has to do with us. So when I pray, I come to God and I say, Dear Lord Jesus, today, as I, I, I said, hallowed be your name, May I see you as holy today. May I realize who you are. When I come, when in a few moments when I start reading my Bible, I pray that you would reveal your holiness to me, that I might see your holy name. 
Because our God is a holy God. And if you don't see God as a holy God, you don't know God. Because that's, he's holy. And then I pray that as I go throughout the day, that he would live in me in such a way that other people may be able to see his holiness in my life. Because that's part of who he is. And then I pray for your kingdom to come. I pray for his kingdom to advance on this earth. I pray that he would rule as king in my heart this day. Too often, I'm doing my own thing and I'm my own king. And that's when I really mess up. But, but we're to be looking for his kingdom to come, to come, first of all, in our own hearts. I'm looking for his kingdom to come one day when he comes and rules and reigns here on earth. But you know what? The kingdom is now. Not physically at him ruling and reigning over the earth, but he is to rule over his people Right now, we're part of his kingdom. We're citizens of the kingdom of God now. Not just when he returns. All right? And so uh, we're, we're to be looking for his kingdom to come in our hearts and that the church and the, his kingdom may advance throughout the world. And then we're to pray for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's, that's kind of a repeat, but we're looking not for our will, but for his will to be done. Too often we think of praying as informing God of what I need. You know what? God said, Jesus said, he already knows what you need. So I used to think, why do I pray then? He already knows what I need because it's not about what I need. Praying is about finding out what he needs and, 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 and getting in tune with him and partnering with him. That's what prayer is. You're partnering with God and saying, I want to do your, your work. I want to work with you. Instead of just saying, hey, God, here's what I'm doing. Help me out. It's, it's conforming to his will. That's what prayer is about. It's about you conforming to his will, not conforming God to your will. All right? Uh, so your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then we're to pray for three things for ourselves. So now we get to our Cadillac, right? No. No, he says, uh, uh, so give us this day our daily bread. Why are we praying for this? First of all, to show dependence on him. We're showing that when we get our daily bread, we realize it's coming from you. And in this country, <laughs> there's very few people that have to pay, pray for their daily bread. So we might say, well, why would I pray for my daily bread? Well, we can still apply it. The things that we need, even the daily bread you eat, literally, you need to recognize that comes from God. And not everybody has this on this earth. And so by praying this, we're showing our dependence on him for even the small daily things that we need. But I think, uh, uh, personally, when I pray for this, I'm also praying because I'm about to read my Bible too. And, the, and, the, and man shall not live by uh, bread, uh, bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And so I want the bread of God to, be fed, to feed me this day too. Not just literal bread, but everything that I need. We can pray for those things. But why am I praying for these things for myself? So I can hallow his name. So I can do his will. So I can advance his kingdom. That's why I need those. If I die of starvation, I can't do any of those things. So I need things to be able to accomplish those first things I was praying for. Um, and forgive us our debts. So I'm praying for myself. Well, why am I praying? Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So I, I, I want to pray for forgiveness. Why do I need that? Why can't I just go on my day and just, just forget about it? It's in the past. No, I need to come to God and get forgiveness for the things that I've done that offend him. Why? Because I need to have a relationship with him if I'm going to represent him. 
If I'm going to advance his kingdom, I've got to be in touch with a king. If I'm an ambassador, I can't just be an ambassador out making policy all by myself. I have to be in touch with a king. All right? And so I, I, need, I need the relationship to be good between me and my king. And then lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so finally, I, I, have to, I, I want to, as I go, please deliver me. I, temptations are going to come, but deliver me from these. And, uh, and, and that I might not sin and destroy the work that I've been praying for here. For your kingdom to, to come. Your, 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 your name to be hallowed. I don't want to ruin your name. Say I'm a Christian. One of my biggest sins. Well, <laughs> uh, should I say one of my besetting sins is when I'm driving, I like to go fast. I've got a life to live. I don't have time sitting here behind the wheel. And so sometimes I can get irritated with people who get in my way because it's about me, right? No, it's not. But sometimes I think like that. And I can, especially when I lived in China, oh man. When I first got there, I used to ride to town with my boss. And he had the car. We didn't have cars. We took the bus everywhere. But he would take me to town so that we could have our meetings on the way to town. It was a 30-minute drive to town and a 30-minute time back. So we'd go into town. we kind of have our meetings together. And we would talk about issues with the school and the ministry. And then we would go take care of his errands. And then we'd come back and, and finish our meetings. And, but my boss, when he was driving, somebody would cut him off. And he'd get so mad. He'd pound the wheel. He'd get so angry. And he's my boss. And I didn't want to say anything. But I was thinking... He needs to act like a Christian. You know, what kind of a testimony is that? But then six months after I arrived in China, he left and went to Ghana and made me the boss and gave me his car. You know what I found out? The devil lives in the steering wheel. Man, I got behind that steering wheel and people cut me off and I was like, you idiots! And by the way, I learned to drive in Tehran, Iran, and they're much more aggressive than in China. I can drive fast, and I can cut people off, and I did it! And I showed them that I was a lousy Christian, is what I showed them. I would do those things, and then the Holy Spirit would smite my heart, and I was like, oh, God, what am I going to do if I end up... Because the way we uh, uh, witness to people over there is invite them out to eat. We would run into people, and I said, what am I going to do if I run into these people? After just doing that, how terrible. Lead me not into temptation, Lord. Give me strength. Because I want to advance your kingdom. I want your name to be hallowed. I don't want them to say, oh yeah, I saw that Christian driving. All right, so all those things that we're praying for for ourselves, we're still praying so that we can accomplish his will, okay? Um, So basically, we're, oh, I just messed up. (laughs) we're praying that the father's original intent would be restored okay we're praying for uh let's look if i can find it here there we go okay so what is god's original intent let's look at genesis 1 26 through 27 then god said let us make mankind in our image in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So mankind was to bear the image of God the Father in flesh on earth. God is spirit. But he had this creation that he just created. He created men and, and plants and animals. And he, he, he created us 
to bear his image on this earth. We're his representative. That's what we were created for, to be his physical representatives on this, on this earth, in this physical earth that he created. So we're to look like him, aren't we? We're, so when we're praying, we're praying that that image might be restored in us, that we might carry out that original purpose that we were created for. Does that make sense? You understand what I'm saying? We're praying for this, restore it. Because see, when we, uh, when we realize that we're sinners, and we need, we need forgiveness, we need a Savior, we're, we, we've got a mess in our hands. And we come to Jesus Christ and we repent and we say, I, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've offended you. I know that I, I'm guilty. Please forgive me and save me. He saves it just like that. But he's not done. Because in this room, how many of you have trusted Jesus to save you? All right? How many of you in this room have sinned since you trusted Jesus to save you? Yeah, same hands. All right? Why? Because he is saving us. He's restored. He saved us. So in other words, that which he begins in us is going to be accomplished. He will finish it. But it needs to be finished. We're being sanctified. We're being saved right now. He's, he's, he's teaching us and he's growing us and he's purging sin away from our lives. To what? To restore the original image that he intended for us to carry. Does that make sense? So our purpose is to bear God's image on this earth. All right? Uh, There's a number of different ways that people look at it. Some people say that bearing God's image means that we're relational because there's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they were in relationship. We can even see it in the first chapter of Genesis when when he said, let us make God in our, uh, let make man in our image. So there was the relationship of the Trinity before the existence of mankind and plants and animals. All right? Or then other people say, well, bearing God's image means that we're to be royal rulers on the earth because he did say rule and have dominion. And then other people say, well, that means we have some of the same characteristics with our father. I have four sons. They all look different, but they all bear my image. Not identical, but there's one of my sons right there. Uh, where's Cody at? Is Cody? Yeah. Oh, good. I'm good to see. Good, good to see you in church today, Cody. <laughs> All right. Kyle was in the first service, and I didn't see him because he was up in the balcony there. And my son uh, Craig is down in Texas this morning at, uh, at pastoring at a church or an assistant pastor at a church down there. All right. And so, but they all bear my image, but it's in different ways. You know what's really cool is my son Craig is dark and tall and thin. When he was a little boy, I used to go out knocking doors, telling people about Jesus. I'd knock on the doors, and I, but I didn't take both of them at the same time when they were like four and two years old. I would only take one a week. I'd leave my wife with them when I'd go out on Saturday. But I'd take one of the boys with me, and almost every week, somebody would say, when I had Craig with me, oh, he looks like his daddy. But then I would take Kyle with me the next week, and Kyle is blonde and freckle-faced and shorter than his brothers. He thinks he's short. He's six foot tall, but he thinks he's short because his brothers are all six, six, four, six, five. But, but he thinks, so he looks totally different than his brother. But I would have him with me, and people would say, oh, he looks like his daddy. And I just got to chuckle, you know, they, they don't even look like each other. When they started to get a little bit older, I would take both of them with me. And I would say, these are my sons. And they would assume that I had been divorced and had a second wife because they didn't look like brothers. I would never get, oh, they look like their daddy. I always got, they don't look like brothers. 
They both look like me, but they look different. And that's the way God created us, to bear the image of God, but in different ways. But it's still bearing his character. Do you you understand what I'm saying? And my sons have learned some of my character. Some of it good, some of it not so good. All right, But they, they, they learn from their father. And that's the way we're supposed to be with our heavenly father. We're supposed to learn his character. We need to study him and spend time with him. Why do they, like my son Craig and my son Cody are the most like my wife. They're naturally, genetically, I think more like my wife. Their temperaments, their personalities, it's more like my wife. But they're a lot like me because they learned it, because they lived with me. Well, you need to live with God. Not just on Sunday, listen to what the preacher says about him once a week. You don't really know him from that. You need to be living with him daily and weekly so that you might know him, that you might correctly bear his image and his character before the world. All right? By the way, I don't want to leave the ladies out because it, 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 notice in Genesis one twenty six and 7, it says, let us make mankind, mankind in our image so that they may rule over the fish. See, and then it says so God, in verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. But then you'd say, well, that's because there's going to be multiple men, right? No, male and female, he created them. So man and woman together are designed to bear the image of who God is. As a team, my wife and I are so opposite. Everything I am, she's not. Everything she is, I'm not. But you know what? We've been married 30, uh uh-oh, 30, this month, no, next month, 36 36 years next month. We'll have been married 36 years next month. But you know what? I've learned to become a little bit more like her, and she's learned to become a little bit more like me. God put us together to become one whole image of God. Does that make sense? And so ladies, don't feel like I'm leaving you out in this thing because you and your husband together are to represent the, the image of God not only to the world, but now we're getting to the family. In your family, as a father, as a mother, your responsibility, children are a heritage of the Lord. And I may be getting way ahead of my notes here. I'm just kind of going off now, but, but, but I am. I'm get, so I'm going to stop right there and we're going to get to, okay, God created us in his image and everything was hunky-dory. Do you people even understand hunky-dory anymore? Sometimes I'm 60 and I say things. I lived out of the country for 15 years and I come back and I say things and people are like, what are you talking about? All right, but, but uh, everything was just great. God created a perfect world, but he gave, gave us one, one, one challenge. And that was in this whole world of trees and garden, he created one tree of the knowledge of good and evil to give us a choice. And he said, you can eat anything you want, just not anything from the, any fruit from this tree. Now, when I lived in China, when I get to this story, you know, Americans, sometimes we get so familiar with stories we don't think about them. But when I get to this part of the story and I talk about Adam and Eve choosing to eat the fruit, they were always like, why did God put the tree there? Why didn't he just not put the tree there? He's God. He didn't have to put the tree there. And I'd say, that's true. And he could have made us robots. But God is love. And love demands a choice. If you don't have a choice, it's not really, you're not doing it out of love. You're doing it because that's what you have to do. 
But God said, I'm going I'm to make it easy for you. I'm only going to make one. And the only rule in the whole world is don't eat from that tree. Can you imagine that? One law in the whole world? No speed limits? Yes. All right? Now, I mean, there was not, there's no other, no other laws, just one. And God said, I'm just going to tell you one thing. You can ch- so you can choose to follow me, love me, and obey me, or you can choose to make yourself God and, and, and do your own thing. And unfortunately, I think most of you probably know the story, so I'm not going to go into it. Adam and Eve chose to turn from God and follow their hearts. And they ate from the tree and brought sin and death into the world. That's why we have the mess we have today. But God knew this was going to happen, and because God is love, even though he knew we were going to mess everything up, he already had a plan. He already had a plan how he was going to restore his image in us and fix everything again. All right? And the image of the Father was restored in Jesus. God came down himself as man, incarnate God as man, with the perfect image of the Father. Well, how many times did Jesus say, I only say what the Father tells me to say? I only do what the Father tells me to do. He is the perfect image of the Father. He is our example of how to bear the image of God in this earth. And if we will come to Jesus Christ with our sins and give him our sin, because he, he went to the cross to pay the debt for our sin, to restore our relationship with the Father. But we're still, he's still working on us even after we come and do that. So we're still learning to bear this image before, before the world, okay? But so actually, we're going to come back to the prayer real quickly then. This is why Jesus told us to pray like this. Because we're actually, what we're doing is we're praying for the image to be restored. For the kingdom to be restored. All right? We're saying, hallowed be your name. We were to represent and glorify the Father's holy name throughout the world, but we failed. So now we pray that we may once again bring honor and glory to the Father as his image bearers. We were originally to be just, it was just already done. He was holy and we knew he was holy. But then the relationship was broken by sin because God is holy and perfect and our sin separated from him. him. He is life, so when we're separated, we now die. The image is corrupted. We no longer know him until he came to us with the perfect incarnate image of God on earth in Jesus Christ. And Jesus paid the debt for our sin to restore the relationship so we may once again learn now how to bear the image of God. All right? So we pray your kingdom come. We were to spread the Father's kingdom through the earth. He said go into all the world and multiply. He told that to Adam and Eve, the first people. That's always been his plan. But we messed it up. So now we pray for it to be restored and for his kingdom to spread throughout the world. Jesus says, so pray like this, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We were to rule the earth under the Father's authority, but we failed. So now we pray that the Father's will is accomplished under his rule once again. So see how the the Lord's prayer is basically we're praying for God to restore everything to the way it was. In us and on this world. So now we're getting to specifics 
This is true. We're to bear his image throughout the entire world to everyone and everything, okay? But now we're going to specifically talk about bearing his image before our children. So I don't want you, those of you that don't have children or maybe your children are grown to turn off at this point because this is still applicable because it's still about bearing God's image, okay? And how we bear his image, all right? But uh, so if we're to bear the image before our children, what, what is the essence of the father's image? Well, he's got lots of attributes. You know, we can say God is omnipresent. God is omnipotent. And we can go on and on and on about the attributes of God. But I would propose that there is one thing that we usually list as an attribute that is more than just an attribute. It's the essence of who God is. And every other attribute flows from this. And that's when John said, God is love. John said it twice. He said, God is love. 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. He, he so equated God to love that you just don't know him if you don't know love. All right, he said in verse 16, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. I like what Jason Williams said last week. God is love, so he defines love. And herein lies the problem. What we do is we define love, and then we project our definition of love onto God. And then we say, God is not who he says he is because he's not doing what I think love should be. Love makes you feel good. It can, but not always. Huh. When I was dating my wife, I loved her. Woo, I, lo- I still do, by the way. All right, I, I was in love with my wife. And in the beginning, everything was going great. In fact, in the beginning, honestly, I wasn't that in love. She hates it when I say that, but the truth was, it didn't start that way. I liked her. I thought she was nice. But the more I knew her, the more I loved her. And then things fell apart. And for... I. To this day, I don't think she could tell you exactly why, but her heart just changed. And she was like, get away, get away, get away, get away, get away. And for two years, she really didn't want to have much to do with me. Now, she didn't have much choice because her mother kept inviting me over to the house. So I kept going over there to eat. (laughs) Because her mother and father loved me, but she didn't. But you know what? Because I loved, it hurt when I was rejected. So love doesn't always make you feel good. Uh, Sometimes, uh, you know what? If you love somebody and they die, how's that make you feel? It hurts. So love isn't always about feeling good. Love, in fact, brings on more pain than anything else. But we have this definition, oh, love just is, oh, it makes me feel all ushy and gooey and feeling so good. Woo, I feel good. I'm in love. Yeah. You didn't know I could dance, did you? I can't. <laughs> all right, I, I feel so, uh, but we're all thinking, we think it's just, oh, it's all about a good feeling. And so when God doesn't make us feel good all the time, God's not really love. God's, God's, God's not been good to me. God is, like the song said today, God is always good. And God is always love. But what we do is we get it backwards. We make our own definition and then say God is love. Oh, now now I know who he is. I don't need to read my Bible. Don't need to pray. Don't need to do anything. I know who God is because God is love. And I know what love is because I defined it. 
(laughs) No, we look at who God is, and we say, God is the definition of love. Not the other way around. Everything that God is, is the definition of love. And so, this morning, I want, I'm, I'm basically going to look at, I'm not going to give you a whole list of different ways to be a good parent. I want to give you one thought, one idea to go from, and build from that. And you can come up with your, many of your own conclusions then. All right? But I believe God is, is the, the essence of God is love. But the Bible says in 1 Peter 1, 15 to 16, But as he who called you is holy, ye also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, Ye shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, I've taken some seminary classes. I've taken some theology classes where in this, if you read different authors, some authors, as they, as they develop the theology of who God is, they start with love. And other ones argue, and they're both kind of dogmatic sometimes, about, well, no, God is holy, and because he's holy, he's love. And the other ones say, no, God is love, and because he's love, he's holy. Well, he is love and he is holy, so it's kind of a ridiculous argument, all right? But at the same time, I think to understand God, I think if we look at the way God presented himself to us, there is a difference between him being holy and him being love. Because love is a noun. The Bible didn't say God is loving. That's a description, that's an adjective. But it says God is love. Now, if it said God is holiness, that's also a noun, but that's not what it says. It said God is holy. That's an adjective. That's a description. Okay? So if I say, my son Chris is here. I see him and Cody. I'll use Chris. Chris, stand up, please, because I know Chris is the most quiet, so I'm going to embarrass him. Okay? I say, Chris, that's a noun, a subject, is my son. Chris and my son are the same thing. You understand? Especially if I say Chris and I qualify it more. Chris is my third son. Now there's nobody else in the world that is my third son. And, there's, and, and so Chris is my third son. That's equating them. They're saying they're the same thing, the same essence. But if I say Chris is tall, well, that's not who Chris is. That's something about Chris. Does that make sense? That's a predicate adjective. That's a description of Chris. If I say Chris is smart, that's a description. That's not who he is. That's a description of who he is as my son. And he's tall and smart because he's my son. No, no, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. You, you can sit down, Chris. Thank you. You see the difference there? But, but the, the only attribute of God that is given as a predicate nominative or a noun or a person, place, or thing is love. Everything else is an adjective, a description. God is holy. Uh, God is good. Everything else about God is a predicate adjective. But love is a noun. It's the same essence. It's the same thing. You, you understand what I'm saying here? So, but, but what we see is height. What we see is intelligence or lack thereof. What we see is, 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 very, uh, is attributes. But at the heart of who God is... It's love. But how did God present himself to us after the fall? I think in the beginning, God presented love. He created a perfect world and gave Adam and Eve a beautiful place to live. He was showing them his love, and they rejected it. After the fall, how did he attempt to restore our knowledge of him? It's through the Bible. And when you read the Old Testament of the Bible... 
If you were to only read the Old Testament, what is dominant in the Bible? Give me some characteristics of God that you, th- you see dominant in the Old Testament. Somebody holler some out. Holiness, that's right. And that's basically a big over... In the Old Testament, he's, rep- he's giving us his holiness. He's a judge. He's righteous. He gets angry when people sin. We see his holiness, his judgment, his wrath. Now, I will say, though, that within the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, you can see God's love because he gets angry. You know, we see him over and over again angry with his, his children, Israel, or even before that with his, his people. But he was always, he would get angry because they, they what does sin do? To, does sin hurt God or does sin hurt us? It hurts his heart because it hurts us. Because God loves us. But we're not really hurting him. We're destroying ourselves when we sin. So when I, when I turn from God and I disobey God, God gets angry. Why? Because he loves me. I tell this story in the first service. When, when we lived in Texas, our house had a nice front yard, but it had a big tree in the front yard. And my boys love sports. They love to play basketball, and they love to play football and baseball. And, and so they would go out in the front yard with their football and try and throw it around. But we had this big tree overhanging with leaves. And so they would go into the street because there's no trees in the street. But as a father, I loved my sons. There were cars that would come up and down the street and sometimes teenagers who were driving like idiots like me. And I did not want my boys to get hit. Our oldest child, my daughter, was hit by a car. I didn't want that to happen to my sons. So guess what my reaction was when my sons disobeyed me and I told them they'd go throw the ball and I'd see them thrown in the street. Let's not do that, boys. In the yard, do not leave the yard when I'm not out here with you. And so they, they would they, they, they'd play in the yard, but the tree's in the way, so, you know, so they're having to throw like Patrick Mahomes, you know, doing those sidearm throws and so, you know, getting the, to keep it low enough so it's not in the trees. Well, sometimes... They didn't care what dad said. And they went out and played in the street because there's no trees out there. And we can throw these long bombs down the street. Our yard's not even that big. I got to show off my big arm, man. And they go out in the street. And then when I caught them, guess what my reaction was? Oh, boys, isn't that sweet? You're playing in the street. No. I was angry. And I had a special tool for these events. When Craig was just a really little boy, I think before the other two were even born, I'm not even sure when I did it, but Craig has it now. He's inherited it. But I went into my garage. I went to the, the, um, the uh, uh, it wasn't Lowe's. I went to another hardware store, though, and I bought a couple pieces of wood, and I came home, and I spent all day car, uh, cutting up and, and routing and sanding. I stained it. I, I, I put a finish on it. But I created two little paddles. My teaching tools for my sons. Not because I hated them, but because I wanted, I did, I'd rather have them have a little bit of pain right now than get run over by a car. Or by let their, life, let their lives get ruined by some other sin. See, the little sins are always what we start with. But if we can cut those off, it'll help them to avoid the bigger ones later. Why? Because I love them. In fact, I even took 
and I got on my computer and I typed up Proverbs, what was it, Chris? Do you remember, Cody? 19? I think it might, yeah, they can quote the verse. All they got to do is look back here. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but, but it said, it said, chasten thy son while there is hope, and let not thy soul spare for his crying. As a reminder to us, because you know what? I love my sons. I did not like spanking my sons. But you know what? I'm not, they may look like me, but my responsibility is to bear the image of God to them. And God said, God said, this is not my idea. Chasten thy son while there is hope. And let not thy son spare for his crying. I didn't like to do that. And you know what? God doesn't like it either. If you read the Old Testament, I mean, when he's bringing down judgment, he almost never ends with the judgment. He's always like, but I'm going to restore you. And I'm going to bring you back. Uh, Don't worry, I love you. I'm bringing you back. And it's going to be better than ever. The love of God is all over the Old Testament. But what we see is the judgment and the harshness. But you know what? They go together. Because that's how God was expressing his love. I love you so much, I'm not going to let you destroy yourself and go to hell. And those of you who are determined to go, I'm going to cut you out so that you don't bring others with you. You know, I think it was, I don't even remember, there's some old preacher used to say, "You you can't love flowers without hating weeds. You know what? If you love something... There's going to be some things you get angry about and some things you hate. And, and so, sometimes because we've, we've made our own definition, a cultural definition of love as being something that makes people feel good, we don't want them to feel bad. You know, I know that they shouldn't do that, but, you know, they're kids. Yeah, they're sinners. And that's why they need your love, enough love to discipline them. To show them that God is holy and there is a right and there is a wrong. It's not all relative like the world is teaching them today. In our postmodern society, everybody has their own truth. Everybody has their own idea of what's right and wrong. And it's okay. You can believe it's okay and I, I don't believe it's okay. I believe something else is okay. But we all have our own truth. No, God is truth. And it's only one. It's him. And his way... He is the way, the truth, and the life. By the way, that was the other exception. I didn't give you the exceptions because I ran out of time in the first sermon. I didn't want to spend too much time on it this time. All right? But there are a few exceptions. But they're only when God is, is spoken of as a metaphor or is when he's spoken of in relation to us. So it's kind of metaphorical in a description of how he relates to us. And then the only other where it's a predicate nominative is when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So love is the way. Love is the truth. And love is life. All right? And so, but anyway. So when, we, when God reveals himself to us, this is not his instance. But what did he start with? He started with, he said in, in Proverbs, he said, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. He said, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Relationship with God and getting his wisdom and knowing him begins with fear. And people like to make that today. Well, that's just revering him. It includes revering him, but it's being afraid of him. We think of fear as a bad thing because, once again, we have our own definitions and we're not looking at God for definitions. 
My goal with my boys, my first goal with my sons, was that they were afraid of me. And that sounds terrible, but that wasn't my end goal. My end goal was that they would know that I loved them. It wasn't that I only wanted them to fear me. That wasn't the goal. But to get to love, you've got to start with fear. You know what? You won't understand the love of God until you first learn to fear him because you realize he is holy and righteous and you're a sinner. And if you don't understand you're a sinner, you're not going to understand how holy he is. And if you don't understand how holy he is, you're never going to get inside to his heart and see his love. So how can fear be a good thing? I want, you know what? Why do we fear anything? Because it's powerful and big and scary, right? All right, it's like, I can't control that. It's too powerful, it's too great. That's why we're afraid of things. That's the way we ought to look at God. He's too powerful. Oh, he's, he's so powerful, so mighty. Ah! You say, wow, that's not a really good image of God. No, that's not the whole image of God. But that's where we start. But you know what the good thing about fear is? Is if we think it's powerful and mighty, we can also trust it. Now, not everything you fear you can trust. But because God is love, you can trust his holiness. And so when I, when I spanked my boys, I didn't spank them because I hated them. I spanked them because I loved them. And most of the time, I believe, if you check with my sons, I believe that they'll tell you this. Most of the time when I spanked them, I ended by telling them, I love you. And many times I told them, I don't want to do this, but God told me I have to do this. And he loves you more than I do, but I love you, so I have to do this. Because I don't want you to destroy yourself, son. Just like God did in the Old Testament. He would say, I'm going to come down on you and you're going to be taken into captivity and the people are going to die and there's going to be the, the, the temples torn down, all kinds of destruction because of your sin. But then I'm going to restore you. So when repentance comes, there can be restoration. And I'm not saying go home and beat your children in anger. That's not what I'm talking about. That's wicked and that's sin on your part. But when you're punishing them because of your love for them and you don't want them to self-destruct, that will bear good fruit. When you just ignore it and say, well, I love them and I want really what you, you don't love them, you love them to love you. And you want them to think you're their buddy. You know what? That'll happen if you'll follow God's plan. I think I can call all four of my sons my friends. And you know what? They don't fear me like they used to. But I'm happy about that. But you know why they don't fear me? Because they learned they can also trust me. Why? Because I'm big and powerful. But not like God. But those powerful things are the things that we can trust, especially when we know that those things... Just today, I preached in the first message, uh, the first sermon, I preached on this, on punishment. Now my sons very often just disappear after church. Only my second son was here in the first service. You know what he did? I sat down here, and he came down and started talking to me. You know why? Because my discipline of him was a way of, rep- of showing him my love. And when my, I found that when, my son, when I disciplined my sons, now they didn't always come to me right away. But in the end, they're like, that's who loves me and I can trust. 
This afternoon, I'm going to go home, and three of my four boys will be there. The other one is, is lousy, and he left us and deserted us and went to Texas. No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, my, other son, my, my first son is, is down in Texas serving in a church down there. But if he was here, he'd be over at my house. Why? Because they're my friends now. I didn't call them up and say, you get over to my house this afternoon. Your mother's cooking food. You get over here. I'm going to whoop you. They have to do that. We sent them an invitation. They willingly came. That's love, willing choice. But they know I love them because I loved them enough to discipline them. And then they could trust me. And then they began to see my love. Does that make sense? And so in schools, we start out with, don't even, <laughs> when we were training in school, don't even smile the first week. I'm not saying you can't smile. But it's kind of like, teach it, lay down the law first. But you know what? That's what God did. He gave us the law to show us his holiness and our unholiness as a first step of restoring our love relationship with him. And when we broke that law, he broke our butts. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? Is it's not separate. It's the same thing. And it's a way of expressing love. All right? Uh, so the father is first to be feared. And then, but then in, when I was in China, the young lady came to me one time. And it's the first time I really thought about it a whole lot. Because I was teaching on the fear of the Lord and the holiness of God. And she came to me and she said, you know, but I'm confused. Because the Bible says perfect love casts out fear. So how can I fear the Lord and then love. I said, it's, I, I don't believe it's simultaneously. I said, you begin with the fear of the Lord, and that builds into a love relationship. All right? Because you learn, okay, let's look at a verse here. First uh, John 4.18, the verse I was talking about. It said, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Um, but then it also says... For fear has to do with what? Punishment. Go ahead and go to the next one. For fear has to do with punishment. So how do you create fear? Punishment when you do wrong. Okay? So that, that's what God was doing with us. He's, he, he's presenting himself in the beginning as a fearful, almighty, righteous, holy, perfect God that we can't live up to. And he's going to punish us when we don't. But that's not where he ended. And it says, whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And so I'm going to go through this kind of quickly. But punishment and fear are eliminated with trusting in obedience. You know what? Now my boy, in fact, Kyle was sitting there down here talking to me. In fact, he was talking about, he said, you know, my daughter, Emmy, she gets more spankings from me. But you know what? She is the most attached to me. I mean, when I, when I come home, she just wants to be with daddy all the time. The one who spanks her. That doesn't make sense. Yeah, that's. It doesn't make sense to us, but that's why God did what he did. Because he wanted us to run to him. Why does Emmy feel that way? Because she can trust her daddy. All right? Um, but uh, So punishment and fear are eliminated with trusting and obedience. You start to trust when you're commanded to do things or told to do things. And then as you, as you obey, you know what? After you obey, your faith grows. Why? Because you saw, oh, that was right. I'm glad they told me to do that. So your faith begins to grow, and your trust in that person begins to grow. You know what? Now, Kyle was just down here telling me. He says, you know what, Dad? Now I can see a lot of things when I was young. I was like, why is Dad doing that? I don't understand why Dad does that. And now he's like, oh, I get it. Now he's a father. 
And it doesn't mean I did everything right. I did not. By the way, I need to make sure that that's, I don't think I did everything right. I know I didn't do everything right. All right? So uh, don't, don't get the idea that I'm trying to <laughs> tell you about what a perfect father I was, because I wasn't. All right? But I, in fact, if you want to go talk to my sons, they can tell you about my imperfections. <laughs> okay? But, um, but still, they, they begin to trust because they, they first feared. Trusting obedience reveals the father's love then. And then perfect love casts out fear. Right now, I don't think any of my boys really fear me. But you know what? They'll call me and say, Dad, what do you think about this? What do you think I should do? Not because I make them. It's because they know I love them. My son Kyle was asking about some property the other day. And he knows he can trust me because, you know what? I'll be honest with him. I'm not God. And I told him, you know, son, this looks good to me, but I've got a few concerns. I think it's going to cost more than you think it's going to cost to buy this land and build on it. So I recommend you talk to somebody who knows a little bit more about this, who's done this, because honestly, I haven't done it. But I do have some concerns. And so he went and talked to Dr. Horton, and and thank you very much for going out there with him and looking at it. I really appreciate that. I really do. So uh, Dr. Horton went out there and and, and looked at the land and told him about some things he didn't know about that I didn't know about, but I kind of suspected some of those things. Because I'm, not because I'm so smart, it's because I'm old. All right? (laughs) But, uh, But he came to me and asked me about that. He didn't have to do that. When my son Craig went off to college, he was on the other side of the world. We were in China. He was 7,000 miles away outside of Chicago. And he would call me and ask for advice. He was paying his own bills. I wasn't giving him a dime. He was on the other side of the world. He didn't have to listen to me, but he knew that I loved him. But I didn't teach him that I loved him by giving him everything he wanted. In fact, even when he was at college, there was times I saw him going through difficulties and I was like, oh, I so want to just transfer some money and help him out of this. I got it. I can do it. But I didn't do it. Not because he was even being punished. But I wanted my son Craig to learn that he can depend on God just like daddy does. He doesn't always need to come back to daddy. My job is to show them who God is. I'm, the, I'm the, the best God has to work with. And so my job is to make sure I'm doing my very best, even though it's going to be imperfect, to represent the image of God to my children. But then it's to pass them off to their true father. That's the job. I want them to, I want them to begin by trusting me, fearing me, trusting me, loving me, so that they will fear him, trust him, and love him, and know his love. Because I know he loves them and can take care of them better than I can. All right? Um, and by the way, he did learn that God took care of him. I mean, there were some things that God did for my son Craig that built his faith when he was in college. If I had stepped in and taken care of it, he would have kept trusting Daddy, not trusting God. Um, but, but my love wanted to do that, but that wouldn't have been real love. Because the real love is to introduce him to the source of love and hook him up there. Um, but there is, so, when I'm, I don't want this to all be negative this morning. But God is a holy God, and I'm afraid we're losing track of that, that fact. God is a loving God, but when we say God is love, we're talking about more than just good feelings. We're talking about his holiness and righteousness. Because that's part of love, too. Because that's what's good for us. Um, our children are not our own. Okay, in fact, let's look at this. How do, God says, let me just sum it up this way. The, uh, punishment is the first step 
of perfecting love then. If we're going to get to perfect love, we have to begin with representing the holiness and righteousness. I'm not saying punish for the sake of punishing. Everybody understand that? I'm not saying just be mean. But when there is unholiness, unrighteousness, we're God's representatives and God punishes that. Therefore, it is our responsibility. It's not really our choice. Children are in heritage of the Lord. They're His, His creation. It's our privilege to parent them as stewards of what He created. But punishment is the first step. It's not the end, but it's, the, it's, the, it's how we get to the end. In fact, there is no love without punishment and discipline. Look at Hebrews 12.6. Hebrews 12.6, and I'm just, I'm just about done. I should have been done already. I'm sorry. But in Hebrews 12.6, it says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. You don't have love if you don't have discipline. Well, I love my kids too much to discipline them. No, that's an oxymoron. No, that's, that's saying two contradictory things. I love my, so, my children so much that I have to discipline them. That's the truth. All right? Um, to bear the Father's image before our children, we must discipline in love. I hope nobody takes this away from this, tonight, uh, this, this morning that I'm, I'm advocating beating your children. What I'm advocating is loving your children the way God loves, which includes representing holiness and discipline to them. By the way, God loves us so much that he allowed his own son to come and take our punishment for us so that we can be restored, all right? Um, our, our children are not ours, though. They are God's creation. They're, they're his heritage, and it's our responsibility. When my wife and I first got married, on the honeymoon, we got to the hotel, we went in the room. The first thing we did is we prayed. We prayed for our marriage, and then we prayed for our children who were not even born yet, obviously. Because we knew that from our marriage, there was a good chance the children would come from that if God chose to bless us with that. But we wanted to represent him well to them because we wanted them, even before we knew them, we wanted them to follow and serve him because we knew we would love them and we knew that's what was best for them. So, in fact, preacher was uh, texting me this morning, encouraging me, and then he went and read the notes in the Bible app from the sermon this morning. And then he wrote back to me, he said this, and I'm going to close with this. For all the hard work and consistent training invested by parents... Happiness comes as God's reward. Believe me, if you determine to have Christ as the central figure of your home and his word as the authority in rearing your children, you have your work cut out for you. It's not easy. It's tiring. But don't be a lazy parent. Don't just say, well, I love them, so I'm not going to do anything. I'll just let them do what they want to do. No, that's not love. My wife, she used to get so, so tired. She was with the boys most of the time, and she'd be spanking them. And they would still, you know what? Believe it or not, one spanking didn't do it. They still kept up. Craig told me, I don't even remember this, but Craig told me he got his last spanking his senior year of high school. But you know what? 
It, 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 it takes a lot of work and it takes consistency over years and years and years. God spent several thousand years bringing us back to him. It's not just a boom, one spanking, boom, he's done. Okay, I already spanked him, so he should be good now. Oh, it's not working. I'm not going to do it anymore. You've got to be consistent. Believe me, if you determine to have Christ as a central figure of your home and his word is the authority in rearing your children. And by the way, that's the key. His word is the authority. You have your work cut out for you. You will find that you'll be outnumbered, scoffed, considered strange by your neighbors and a few teachers, criticized, misunderstood, and tempted to compromise, even by those within the church sometimes. That's not in here, but that's, that's true. The very forces of hell will unleash their fury on you. You will be on your knees in the, in, in the word regularly. But if you maintain the standard with love, gentleness, and consistency, God promises that you will look back in your twilight years and enjoy inward personal pleasure. And I can testify that that's true. My children are such a blessing to me today. And even better, I have grandchildren now. The converse is also true. If you relinquish your responsibilities as a parent, you can expect sad and serious consequences. I told him in the first service, when we lived in China, the first half of the time over there, we were in northeast China, which is one of the poorest provinces in the country. And we lived with, uh, we had farm kids coming to our school that didn't have windows in their houses. And in January there, I tell him, in, in, in January there, we were there for over seven years. Seven Januaries, the highest temperature we ever saw was five degrees. It was 20, 30 degrees below at night. And those kids didn't have windows in their house. They lived strict, they had to work, they had to obey their parents, and you know what? They respect and revered, it, revered their parents. Then we moved to Wenzhou, one of the richest cities in the country. I was a poor American there. My neighbors had Porsches and even Rolls, one of our neighbors had a Rolls Royce. I mean, they had Lamborghinis, Ferraris, and I was driving a Toyota, a poor, stupid American. But the kids driving around in the Lamborghinis, 19, 20 years old, they hated their parents. Because their parents just gave them whatever they wanted, let them do whatever they wanted. And they knew their parents didn't really love them. Their parents love stuff. Love your kids enough to present the image of God the way he presented himself to us. God loves us so much that he sent the ultimate resolution to our sin problem in his son, Jesus Christ who bore the perfect image of God. And as his followers, we're to be praying to restore that image in us to bear to our children and to all the world. If you're not his child now, I'd like to invite you to come this morning and we can talk to you about how to restore your relationship with God that was always intended. If you're born again, but maybe you haven't committed, you might have even gone through the ceremony, but in your heart, you haven't really given your children to God and, and determined that you're going to rear them according to his word and his instructions. I want to invite you to come down this morning and dedicate your life and your children to God. To God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do love you. and Thank you so much for your love for us, loving us enough to take time, I mean, literally thousands of years, to work and work and work at restoring our relationship with you. Thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ to pay the debt for our sin. Thank you for showing your sacrificial love to us. And I pray that you would teach us to show that love to others. We ask these things in Jesus' name. If you have anything to deal with with God, you come.